I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Now, I hope you enjoyed our previous episode, Iconic Ships, episode 17, in which we went back in time further than ever before for an Iconic Ships episode and discussed the astonishing Grasse Dieu, built in 1418 during the reign of Henry V, so maybe a century or so before the more famous Mary Rose, and yet the Grasse Dieu was three times larger. An astonishing feat of ship design and construction at a time when ships of such a size really were nothing but a dream. Unless, I suppose, you were Chinese, I must add that. Anyway, we'll come back to that in the future. I'm sure I see perhaps an episode on Chinese treasure ships on the horizon. Anyway, I greatly enjoyed going back so far and have decided for this episode to go back even further. Yes, that's right. Today we are exploring the Sutton Hoo ship. Now, evidence of this ship was found in Sutton Hoo, a particularly beautiful area of Suffolk near the River Devon and the town of Woodbridge. And the ship wasn't found in a muddy river bank, but on land inside a burial mound in what proved to be, without any doubt, the richest intact medieval grave ever discovered. In fact, the word grave does it a grave injustice. Perhaps spectacular funerary monument on an epic scale does it more justice. All of this dated back from the early 7th century. Here, it seems, was the final resting place of an Anglo-Saxon king. The grave was full of the most spectacular riches, which you can still see at the British Museum, and they were all placed inside the hull of a ship. The discovery rewrote our understanding of post-Roman Britain. Here was exceptional artistry, evidence of long-distance trade and spectacular shipbuilding. To find out more, I got in touch with the lovely people from the Sutton Hoo Ships Company who are organising a project to rebuild the Sutton Hoo ship. Their stated aims are to create an interpretation of the ship that provides the best possible means of testing and understanding how the ship could have been used under a range of different conditions. The man at the heart of this remarkable project is the excellent Tim Kirk, master shipwright of the project. And as ever, I hope you enjoy listening to Tim. 
him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Enough from me. Here is Tim, who, appropriately, is talking to us from on board a boat. Uh, Tim, I should say, you're, uh, this is a maritime history podcast. You're the first person I've interviewed who's actually on a boat. <laughs> well, that's good. That's a good start. <laughs> let's, let's start with you telling, telling us about your boat, please. Oh, um, I trained as a boat builder 25 years ago now because I wanted to build a big boat. Uh, originally, well, me and my wife uh, wanted to build a, a big boat. Uh, to run development training courses from. At the time, we were instructors for the Outward Bound Trust, and we wanted to do it on a, on a smaller uh, environment, close to the original ethos of, um, of the Outward Bound Organisation, the Outward Bound Trust. And uh, so I went and trained for a year in Lower Stoft, and um, we built the boat, and it's been uh, home now for 15 years. This gets better and better. So you're not only are you on a boat, you're on a boat that you built. Yes, this was the first big boat that I built. Yeah, I built lots of model boats before, but the first mm. <laughs> proper one, <laughs> first well, proper one. Yeah. What, what what sort of boat is it? I can all I can see you're you're in some kind of snug and surrounded by timber. That's all I yeah, can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the the main cabin bulkhead. Yeah. Um, it's a uh, Bruce Roberts Spray. So um, Spray was Joshua Slocum's boat. Slocum was the first guy to sail alone around the world, and uh, Bruce Robert. Bruce Roberts Goodson was an Australian naval architect who um, thought there was potential in this design. And so in the 60s, he um, began updating it for actually at that time, glass fiber production. But um, there's probably, and then he sold plans all over the world and in all sorts of different sizes. Spray was originally a 36 footer, but they've built them in 22 footers right up to 75 footers. So I bought plans for a 40-footer and with the rashness of youth, decided I would stretch it to 50 feet, <laughs> which um, was a blessing and a curse, really, as <laughs> we're both at the same time. Yeah. So uh, there, we, there we go. That's, it's, it's a great a great start to our chat. Um, so how did you end up doing what you're doing now, which is rebuilding an Anglo-Saxon vessel? Yeah. Um, uh, 11 years ago, I was involved in the restoration of Woodbridge Tide Mill and I was working for the International Boat Building Training College at the time and we had a contract to rebuild the water wheel for the tide mill, well, to build a new water wheel for the tide mill. And um, that, that the tide mill is about 50 yards from the long shed where the ship is being built. And um, that was when I first heard about the project. Uh, yeah, simple so, as that, really. For our listeners who don't know, can you just t tell us about the Sutton Who ship? Well, the Sutton Who ship um, was excavated in 1939, uh, having been in the ground for nearly 1,400 years, because it's believed that it was the the burial ship of uh, King Radwald of the East Angles. I think that's fairly generally accepted. Now. He died in 624 or 625 AD. Um and uh, the film, The Dig, the feature film, The Dig, actually portrayed quite a bit of that um, last year, was it 2020? During yeah, lockdown, anyway. <laughs> and um, so we are, I mean, there have been plans to reconstruct the ship. It's the last artifact from the burial that had been reconstructed. So the, 
the shields being reconstructed, the um, helmet famously has been reconstructed a number of times till they were happy that they, they got a, a fair reflection of what, what the original was like. But the ship's never been reconstructed. But it's been talked about and dreamt about for, well, at least since the 1967 excavation uh, under Rupert Bruce Mitford from the British Museum. And we're very fortunate now. One of our trustees is Angela Kerr Evans, who was actually involved with that excavation in 1967. Um, and so there's a direct link there back to the early excavations. And of course, Martin Carver, who's our chair of trustees, he led 10 years of uh, excavations up there in the 1980s to reveal the whole nature of the cemetery site. And it was a cemetery over a period of about 500 years, uh, with Radwold's burial being at the earlier part of that, the earlier end of that. Yeah, I've seen the um, the, the remarkable um, material that survives at the British Museum. And if you're listening and you want to go and see it, do just go to the British Museum where you can seal that, see the fantastic, the gold belt buckle springs yeah. to mind, as yeah. well as the... Um, uh, the, the the gold itself and the, the wonderful shield and the helmet. Um, let's just talk about the vessel itself. How much of that survived? None. <laughs> well, that's not quite fair. Um, all the timber, <laughs> all the timber had decayed over the nearly fourteen hundred years, as I say. It's uh, it's in an acidic sand, and so all the all the oak timber had decayed. But um, when when Basil Brown opened it up, what he found was all of the, well, the vast majority of the iron nails that held the clinker straight together, the clinker planking together. And also, ha having um, rotted away, the timber had left a hard crust of sand in the outline of the planking and the frame of the ship. And so when they um, uh, excavated it and surveyed it, right close up to the start of World War II, so it was was something like the 28th of August, 1939, when they finished the excavation. Um, they actually surveyed it and they, they dropped a plumb bar down onto the heads of the nails or adjacent to the heads of the nails uh, and got a really very accurate, um, detailed uh, plan of the ship. And a lot of those... Um, nail locations were confirmed by the 1967 excavation. So we know that they're really quite accurate, even by you know using the excavation skills and standards of the day. So we're very fortunate to have that. And um, then as we got closer to the, to the start of the build, um, a number of different folks, so Paul Handley, who's a naval architect, and um, uh, Dr. Julian Whitewright and Pat Tanner from Southampton University put all this data through um, a 3D digital design program. And um, so in 2018, we came up with a, they came up with a um, really, what we believe is the most accurate set of plans ever for the ship. Wonderful. And that gives you a starting point. Tim, because the timber didn't actually survive, do you have a good idea of what sort of timber it was made from? We're pretty sure it was oak. Oak was the most one. Well, it was one of the three most plentiful species of the period, along with probably ash and uh, mm, Scott's uh, pine, probably the only real, really useful softwood. And that's quite difficult. 
And we know from earlier ships, like the New Dam Oak Boat, there you go, there's a clue in the name there, which was uh, around 300 AD, found in Denmark, still a, still a, a Saxon-era ship. That was all oak. That was found in a in a bog in the 1860s, and they know that it's oak. And then, if you, as you go through to the later Viking vessels, they're mainly oak. There's some other timbers and some softwoods in them, but they're mainly oak as well. So we believe it was all oak. What about the shape of it? Can you describe um, how it appeared to us? Um, well, it's a very Fine, if that's a technical term, <laughs> uh, fine being a narrow, sweeping, long boat. Um, it's 88 feet long, so that's in, in modern money, that's what, 26.3 metres. It's about uh, 14 foot 6 beam, that's 4.4 metres. And it uh, takes about two foot, just over two foot of water to, to float in. Uh, wow. Or, 0.65 meters yeah but uh, at that sort of size and displacement it weighs fully loaded about 16 tons now my boat here when it when it's fully loaded weighs 18 tons and it's only three-fifths the length of that so it was a very fine shaped boat a beautifully long sleek uh sweeping lines really um yeah, yeah. It's double-ended, so it, it has a, a post at each end rather than a flat transom like we would have today. But the ends are much more, so the bow and the stern are much more sweeping and, and um, lower to the water than uh, the classic Viking ship would be. And that seems to be characteristic of the period. Um, was the vessel built for the burial or was this a vessel that we think had been used before? It's a very often asked question, and it's a very simple answer, really. There's there's three areas of repair what we think are repairs on the ship, which would seem to indicate that it had quite a long service life, active service life. So there's um, all 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 the uh, planks are joined together with iron nails, um, but all the frames that go across the planks and the backbone structure, so the keel and the stem and stem post, are all held together with wooden tree nails, except at the joint aft scarf joint to the keel, where it's got three long iron nails going through it. And it, that's been suggested as repair. And adjacent to that, on the next plank outboard, there's a typical pattern for a tingle, a patch that would be put on the outside of the ship. So there's two separate areas there, which might indicate um, that it's... Uh, that it had some sort of incident at one time where it, it fractured the keel. Um, and then just below the waterline uh, on the, I can't remember which side it is now, but port or starboard aft, uh, port it is because aft is a, is a side rudder. Um, there's a row of nails. All, all the nails are really accurately spaced. It really is a work of art. And all the, all the rove heads, the, 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 on the inside are diamond shaped rows and they're all beautifully aligned along the axis of the planks um, but in one particular area about 10 foot long they are fastened with intermediate nails and even today that's a classic way of trying to cure a leaking plank in a clinker boat so taken combined those three things seem to make it pretty clear that this ship had some sort of service life 
Do we know how it was powered? We know it was uh, a road ship, um, and we know that not because we found not because there were any oars found because there weren't, um, but because uh, along the the, sh- the top of the shear the shear line so that's the top edge of the planking. There's um, separate uh, hooked foals they're known as so they're the they're the forerunner to what we today would know as rollocks and so there's um seven of those on each side at the front end and the back end of the ship and it's been suggested that they should be in the middle of the ship as well but in the excavation there's no trace of them and that led to a number of suggestions well that could be where the king's retinue sat or um they could have been taken away because when they built the burial chamber, because the burial chamber was in that area. But um, all the, these tholes, these tholes are fastened by six inch iron spikes, four of them to each thole. And there's no sign of any damage to planking. And if the ship had been used for any length of time with corroded iron, you'd expect quite a bit of damage to take those out. Um, so that leaves a third option, which, which was that was where the rigging went for a mast and by inference, a sail as well. So we know it was a road ship. It might have been a sailed ship as well. But there's no gen. It's generally accepted. There's no evidence for sailing in the Saxon period till about the eighth century. So there's a bit of a conundrum there, because the Romans sailed for four hundred years in Britain, and would it have been? Would that technology have been lost? Because there was definitely in uh, uh, con lots of contact with the continent and that because there had to be because of the grave goods that were were there came from all over the mediterranean and beyond um so it it could have been a sailing ship it's one of those kind of big mysteries isn't it because we have such a a dearth of knowledge of vessels you know from the fifth and the sixth centuries yeah we've we've got in britain we've got i think it's either four or five uh, which are suggested to be of the period, yeah. And and two of those are, had been reused either in uh, walls or burials. So they're just sections of boats. And and none, none of them really have substantial timbers. They're all sand impressions. Yeah, a fascinating problem. Now, uh, the, the the really distinctive thing about the Sutton Hoo vessel is the burial chamber in the middle of it. So the, um, the yeah. burial wasn't... Uh, well, you describe it for us. It looks it looks like a, a tent almost. <laughs> well, like a house. I mean, um, um, I was reading it the other day in, in the uh, excavation report. The excavation report is four volumes and it's about a foot high. It's an amazing piece of work edited by Rupert Bruce Mitford. Um, and that suggests that it was a timber structure um, with either planks or half logs building the ends and then it had a pitched roof which might have had even two layers of planking one going vertically and one going horizontally um and within that uh, so that was um roughly if i recall correctly about 20 feet long something like that, six meters long and and the whole of the breadth of the ship um i'm not sure we have a good estimate of how tall it was but it would have probably been of the order of 10 or 12 feet high, I would think, at least. There's a massive structure that they built. Du- double plank to, to withstand the weight of the, the sand that was going to be put on top of it. I think that's the inference, yes. Yeah. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And um, how were things laid out inside that burial chamber? Oh, very deliberately. Um, there was um, the personal regalia of, of a, a very high status person. So shoulder clasps, belt buckle. Um, sword all laid shield all laid out neatly in the center uh, center area of it and then against one wall was propped um what the best way to describe it a brazier is a, i think it's technically called it's a, an iron standard with um a, 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 a square platform at the top and four hooks on each corner a hook on each corner which um banners flags would be flown from um uh and then there was um a huge array of rich silver dishes and bowls some of them nesting inside each other um and the the the, the big thing was a uh, a whetstone so a square whetstone for sharpening tools um but with uh, uh so four faces on that and the top and the top certainly had engraved pictures of people's heads on them and uh i think uh think now that the bronze stag that was found sat on top of that i think i got that right there's so much to actually know and understand about it i've been in these books for two and a half years now and i'm really just scratching the surface oh wow amazing stuff so how do you go about rebuilding a vessel like this well it for all its grandeur and it really is a grand vessel it's just a big clinker built rowing boat and so you build it the same way you build any other clinker built rowing boat, except that in modern standards, you would build the skeleton of the boat first and then almost attach the planks on as an afterthought. They're just there to keep the water out. But in the period, they did it the other way around. They built the shell first and then they put the interior structure in. Hmm. Now, um, and that, that had gone on for millennia, really. Uh, uh, we're beginning to learn, or we've been learning for the last, what, 60, 70 years, perhaps. 
that um, that went on in the Mediterranean and it went on, you know, all over the place, down the generations. Um, eventually, there was a, a changeover to building a uh, skeleton first. And so ideally, and what we planned originally, was to build purely by eye. That way, when they, when they built it, no two boats would be exactly the same because they didn't use drawings. It was all done from the shipwright's experience and his eye. And, uh, you know, they may well have um, found a couple of nice curved trees for the stem and stern post and thought, yes, they'll do. They're good quality. They're the right sort of curve. We'll use those. Problem is, we're not trying to do that. We're trying to re recreate as accurately as we can what went into the ground in 624. And so we are actually using the modern method of putting in temporary molds, wooden molds, softwood molds, um, and then putting the planking on those and then putting the frames, the proper oak frames in, and then we'll take the frames out, uh, the molds out. So it starts with the backbone of the ship. So first you have to find a, a, a tree for the keel. Now, again, the, the uh, literature is quite confusing about this. Some of them say the keel was about 47, 48 feet long. Some of them say the keel was 60 feet long because the waterline length of the ship is 60 feet. Um, anyway, we found a tree that was 40 feet long, big oak tree, beautiful oak tree. And it took us about 18 months to find it in Britain. And um, so we've put the, the keel in at that length. Even, at, even then, we had to cut the aft three feet off it because there was a big knot in there, which I was trying to get away with. And as it dried, you know, we, we realized it was going to be too much of a defect. And so we had to take that out. So the keel's about um, 38 feet long, something like that. And, and so to get the extra um, 20 odd feet, we put extensions onto the keel, bow and stern. Now, the keel is um, five inches thick, something like that. Excuse me for using inches. I'm of that generation where, <laughs> it's fine. where right. they come naturally to me. And actually, the Saxons would have used them as well. Oh, so well, that's, that's the key thing. Yeah, there was there was the they. It's very interesting. The more I get into it and the more I look at the, the, the different relations of the ship, it looks to me like um, they're using a specific type of measurement. And um, Yes, so it's um, so we needed to go back to where we started from. We needed to add the twenty odd feet um, yeah. to get the to get the correct curve in the keel, um, and so they are what we are calling um, underlouts. So it's an it's a it's a it's a I think it's Middle English term actually, which purely means an extension piece. So these two pieces extend the keel. And then above those, we've got the stem at the bow and the stern post at the stern. So there's five pieces of the backbone all held together with tree nails. And then you start where, with... Go on. Where did you find the oak tree, the big oak tree, which provided the keel? That was fascinating, that was. One of our volunteers who lives in the West Country said, you should go and try Forestry England at Purton near Swindon. And we went over there and got in touch with them and uh, went over and had a look. And they had this little stand of, well, it wasn't a little stand. It was quite a big stand of trees. And in it, there was this one dead straight oak, uh, 200 years old. We know it's 200 years old because they've got the planting records still. Wow. And we know, so it was planted in 1820 and it was planted for shipbuilding use. So they, when you do that, when you want a long straight 
tree, you have to plant them a specific, or you 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 plant them or and then um, thin them out to so that they're a specific distance apart and take the small branches off as the tree grows. So it's got it's got no branches really as it grows up. So this tree for certainly thirty eight feet had not a knot showing on the outside of it. It's an amazing piece of timber. And um, then uh, I was still looking for these curved timbers for the um, underlouts. And uh, Rob, the forester there, uh, said, uh, we turned around and 30 yards away, there was this beautifully tree with like grown almost in a question mark shape. And it was perfect for what I wanted. I knew it was straight away. So um, they felled the two trees for us they were due to be felled i think it was the 20th of march 2020 which was right before um lockdown started or it might have been the day after lockdown started a week later something like that so anyway we had to wait until september 2020 to get them felled uh and then we had to get them transported to woodbridge which is right on the east coast suffolk you know 10 miles north of ipswich and um, with lockdowns again it wasn't until april 21 last year that we were able to start working on this log amazing i can't wait to yeah. see it i'm going to come up uh, how are you getting on now what stage are you at well we've got the backbone is complete um and so for the first time in what 1400 years we can actually see the full size shape of a saxon longship um, which yeah it really is actually that's not quite true because a couple of years ago the Sutton Who National Trust Sutton Who site, they unveiled it in skeleton form in, as a sculpture. But mm -hmm. um, um, yeah, so we've got uh, all the backbone made. The molds are all set up. There's some ribbons, so some some softwood battens which delineate the plank edges and help us work out and and make and make sure the, the curves in the planking are fair and accurate. And uh, we're now beginning to cut the planking and fit the planking to the ship. So the first two planks are actually there on the ship, just waiting to be finally fitted to shape and, and nailed up. And then there's all, all, the, all the structure that goes around that as well. So we've got two full scale, well, a full scale midships model, model of the midship, half the length of the burial chamber. And that's been used as an experimental tool and a training tool. And then we've also got a one-fifth scale model, which is nearly fully planked now. And that's what we were going to use to take the data from um, when we were going to build it the traditional, what we believe is a traditional Anglo-Saxon way. Um, but when, when, we, when we decided to go away from that, we're now using it as an experimental tool, really, as well. So we've planked. There's, there's now five major drawings of the ship, and every one of them is different. And we believe we've got the most accurate one yet. But there's still areas of conflict in the drawings and so we've one of them is the way the planks are laid out so we've we've planked one side to the 2018 drawing from southampton university and the other side we've planked to the 1975 drawing much close to that um that's in in volume one of the sutton who ships burial and um that's helping us to understand the difference in, in plank layout and why they might be there and what effect it might have for us when we when we try to do that full size how many of you are working on it well it's a massive project actually the, over there's over 70 volunteers at the moment wow yeah there's about 
25, 30 of us in the boat building crew. So there's myself and my assistant, Laurie Walker. And then we have all, all the rest of volunteers. And um, so they come in, some come in one day a week, some come in three days a week. Um, and they've all had to learn how, well, I think three of those volunteers have actually done a boat building training course. The rest we've had to teach from scratch about how to build a clinker boat. Um, <laughs> I've had to learn how to cleave trees. That's not something I'd ever done to, to split the trees first before we can turn them into planks with axes. Um, uh, uh, but then it is one big experimental archaeology project. And so we have... Well, a, take us through how you cleave a tree. Well, um, if you've got your, your round, say it's a straight, the straight, a straight tree, a straight trunk, uh, 16 feet long, five metres long, say. Um, so you split it in half first, and you do that using the natural splits that form in the wood as it's felled and as it dries. So along the end, on the end of the the end face of it you'll find there's generally a, a split that has started so you could drive wedges into that hard uh, seasoned oak wedges drive them into that and and then it'll begin to split along the top edge and so all you do then is drive the wedges in further and spread the split further down the log and eventually it splits open in half and actually there's a really good time lapse for, uh, video of that on our website at the moment um, we will find that. I've yeah. seen that. I've seen it done at the Viking Museum yeah. in Denmark. Yeah, yeah. Mm. it's fa fascinating. And sometimes it goes right, and you get a really dead true cleave. And I mean, we had one uh, log that actually was when we when we'd split it, it was the split was twisted through ninety degrees almost. Amazing, because of the internal grain of the tree. Sometimes you can see that in the bark. And so, you know, actually, I don't want that one. Thank you very much. But um, sometimes it can still look straight, the, gra the, the grain in the bark, the fissures in the bark. But somehow there's a twist in it that runs all the way along or the split doesn't quite go right. We get it wrong, whatever. And it, uh, it becomes very difficult to use then. because I bet it had, I bet it had a, a, a unique use, though. I bet in the Anglo-Saxon period, they'd see one like that and go, oh, that's just what I need yeah. for the top of the something. Yeah, well, <laughs> well we, we can use that to our advantage even, as long as it's not too extreme, because particularly in the ends of the ship, there's a lot of twist to the planking as well as bend. And um, it really helps if you've got that, that twist naturally in the timber. So we can use it to our advantage, but some of them just go too far. <laughs> they, uh, there's a lot of Anglo-Saxon language used. <laughs> very good um and then how do you make your plank once you've cleaved well, your once trunk? you've cleaved the trunk in half then you would cleave it into quarters and into eighths and into sixteenths and by the time you've got it down to a sixteenth of the circumference of the tree you're able then to to go on to work it with axes to get it down to the finished thickness of one inch and um you know we might say today uh that entails a lot of waste but to the saxons that would all be used so they would use it in their hearths for making iron and 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 forging iron they'd use it in their domestic life they'd use it for making charcoal they'd use it for making pine tar and things like that so none of it would be wasted um so it's a it's a the whole technology is of the period is really fascinating anglo-saxon Anglo-Saxon metallurgy is another one which I've barely got my head around, but it's so involved and difficult. 
it's really fascinating. Yeah, we should find out more about that. What about the um, the strain on your own body from wielding an axe to cut a plank? Have you got the equivalent of tennis elbow? Is it is it Anglo-Saxon axe's elbow? Uh, we, something we have to be very careful of. You can see me. Your, your yeah. listeners won't. <laughs> I'm not a spring chicken. <laughs> and uh, because it's a volunteer project, not many of our volunteers are. Our oldest volunteer is 90 in a couple of months. Um wow. But they are all accomplished people in, in their own right. So we've got a number of different types of engineers, from aeronautical engineers to oh, nuclear power station engineers and things like that. We've got a retired eye surgeon working with us. We've got green woodworkers who are really good, timber specialists. And, it, uh, yeah, repetitive strain injury is something that we have to be very careful of. And um, mm. so it's a matter of making sure people don't do too much at any one time and that we train them in the correct techniques of using an axe. Yeah. It's phenomenally dangerous if you actually uh, go... No, and, no, no, no. It's, well, it's not dangerous. It, well, okay. as... <laughs> I mean, I, I've just, my experience of going to the, the, the shipyard in the, um, in the Viking Ship Museum is, is, is it's very easy to look at it and, not, and consider it's not dangerous. But when you realise how heavy these pieces of timber are, oh. how sharp the axes are, you know, the bits falling on your foot, there are so many ways. It, it's more dangerous than it looks, shall I say that? There's, there's certainly a lot of safety considerations, yeah. So you've got to be careful the log doesn't roll on top of you. And when it, when it splits open, it might split in a very controlled way, uh, but it might split in an instant, uh, and and fall open, and then you've got possibly two tons of oak coming towards you. So yes, um, you have to have your wits about you. Um, but ev- generally, everything happens quite slowly. And so the, the the biggest issues that we have actually are, are trip hazards. There's trip hazards everywhere, and um, I'm one of the guilty parties in that. Not looking where I'm going or concentrating on something else. <laughs> before you know it you've tripped over an anglo-saxon longship yeah um uh, tim wonderful for sharing this story thank you so much indeed and i promise you i'll pop up as soon as i can because i, I want to come and see this project it sounds fantastic i think what you guys are doing is amazing well done thank you very much sam it's been a pleasure Thank you all so much for listening. Now, if you have enjoyed this episode, and I very much hope that you have, do please check out all of our other wonderful episodes on iconic ships. We have huge warships, merchant ships, ships built for voyages, for discovery, transatlantic liners, and so much more. I guarantee you will find out something you didn't know about a ship that you've heard of, and a whole lot of information as well about ships that perhaps you've never heard of at all. Uh, All of this available in our back catalogue. Please also do not just leave your interaction with this podcast with these audio episodes, good as they are, because there are some really wonderful videos on the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page. And you can also find us and the Society for Nautical Research on social media. Please remember that this podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. You can find the history and education and archive of the Lloyd's Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.com foundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk. Many thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back again soon.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.